0: Three simple steps to a fairy tale summer, and I would love for you to join me. Save your free seat at the workshop by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. See you there. You're listening to the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. This is the podcast that inspires you to build your family culture around books. Hello, hello, Sarah McKenzie here, and you're listening to Episode 17 of the Read Aloud Revival Podcast. I'm really glad you're here. I don't think I thank you often enough for taking the time to listen, but it really means a lot to me. And I know that your time is really, really tight and you've got a lot of things on your plate. And so I'm just so grateful for this community that is willing to carve out some time, get inspired to do this really important, really big thing in their home, which is building up their family culture, building up each of their kids heart to heart. Here's what you can expect in 2015. Every two weeks on Tuesdays, A new podcast episode will go up. You can find those, of course, at readaloudrevival.com. Now, in March, we've got a whole bunch more awesomeness coming your way. So stay tuned because the next couple of months, I'm going to be sharing as much as I can as we go along. I've got a little team of people helping me put together this really awesome resource for you that I think you're going to love. I don't want to talk about that today, though. I really want to get into this episode. Because I'm so excited about this episode. Sarah Clarkson and I tried to get together for a podcast several times, but she is studying at Oxford in England. And it was a little bit hard to coordinate our schedules with different time zones and whatnot. The morning we finally did end up getting to record, she looked beautiful and radiant. And when I called her on Skype, she answered with her video. And that I thought, oh my goodness. And I was in my pajamas with my bed hair. <laughs> What I tend to do is schedule the podcast early in the morning and sneak out of bed before the babies are awake and um, sneak into my office and have these really awesome conversations about reading aloud before everybody wakes up. And so I wouldn't turn my camera on. So poor Sarah. I got to look at her the whole time we were talking and she had to just look into her screen. (laughs) But she's awesome. You're going to love her. So I'm going to stop babbling right now and we're going to get right into it. I get the distinct privilege of chatting with someone I just know you will love if you don't already. Sarah Clarkson is the daughter of the very well-known and much beloved founders of Wholeheart Heart Ministries, Clay and Sally Clarkson. The Clarksons have been instrumental in the movement toward forming strong family culture in today's modern and hectic world. And Sarah, a student at Oxford, chief editor of storyformed.com and author of several fantastic books, Journeys of Faithfulness, Read for the Heart, and her newest, utterly fabulous book, Caught Up in a Story, fostering a story-formed life of great books and imagination with your children. Quite honestly, I can't think of someone who is a better inspiration and encouragement to what we're doing here at the Read Aloud Revival, and I am so excited to be chatting with her today.
1: Sarah, welcome to the Read Aloud Revival. Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, maybe for our listeners who haven't met you yet. Can you tell us a little bit about
1: yourself? Absolutely. I, at the moment, I'm a student at Oxford. I spent a lot of years out of high school doing writing and working with my parents' ministry and doing a lot of travel, but just life came together in such a way I knew I wanted to pursue study. And I've always loved Oxford, having been raised on C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So (laughs) at the moment, I am a student at Oxford studying theology. I love it. I'm also continuing to develop storyform.com as a website because I love children's literature and I just really have a heart for helping parents to cultivate imagination and story in the lives and souls of their children. So yes, yeah, so Oxford student, I'm continuing to write. I'm hoping to do some children's stories in the future, but that's um, a little bit about me. I can give you more history too, if you'd rather have that. Yeah, I would love that too. All right. Yeah, I am probably, many of you know my parents, Clay and Sally Clarkson. I was raised And a wonderful family. I grew up in just very shaped by literature in our home. My parents had a heart early on to really cultivate a home that was filled with books. I think the two of the defining forces in our home were discipleship and literature. And I really think the two go together. My parents, when I was very young, were lived in Europe and were surrounded by writers and musicians and artists and missionaries. And they just got this vision, I think, for what it looked like to have a very rich soul, and they wanted to give that to their children. So, from the time I was a little girl, we moved back to the states when I was very young. They went about creating this a home that was rich in books and art and music, and also on the other side, what I would say, the story of of, the, of scripture and discipleship. I was I encountered the Bible from the time I was little as a story. This was my story, um, the story of Christ. And so, I grew up in a home crammed with books and just really felt the stories shaped my identity as a person, shaped my vision of what I wanted to do. And so being the child of writers, I very naturally, I think, was drawn to the written word. Pretty much everyone in my family is. We, none of us will be able to balance our checkbooks greatly or be accountants, <laughs> but we can all write a story or sing a song. <laughs> so The important things, you know. <laughs> exactly. So when I was uh, 16 or 17, I expressed a desire to be a writer. And my parents, to my surprise, said, well, why don't you try to write a book? And their philosophy of education, I was educated at home, as you probably know, um, was to give us two years before we graduated high school in our home to really experiment with vocationally, to have a chance to really go after what we wanted to do. And so my dad said, all right, well, why don't you try to write a book? And so he said, what do you want to write about? And I was like, well, I want to write about stories. And I, I want to write stories about the women in scripture. And so I wrote this book, Journeys of Faithfulness, for young women and... My daughter, my oldest daughter has that book and she loves it. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yes. Well, I just, I want the stories of the women in scripture. I think scripture is full of such vivid stories. And sometimes we read it not as a story, but as something very uninteresting. And I wanted to bring those to life because they brought such life to me. So that book, my dad and mom got an editor. I worked with publishing companies and um, that book was published about... Gosh, almost 12 years ago now.
0: What an Uh, amazing experience for you while you were growing up. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) It was amazing. And it really gave me the chance at a, a fairly young age to see what I was capable of and to really explore kind of my vocation and to see what God had called me to and to experiment. I really believe in experimentation when you're that age and having the chance to try things and work very hard. And so it was, it was kind of a transformative experience. It launched me into writing for really the next decade. And that's pretty much what I've done until about just the past year. I continue to write um, devotionally for young women, and and then just briefly, I, I went to a conference in Oxford almost ten years ago now, at which Dana Joya, who, who is now the national, he, at the time he was the head of the National Endowment for the Arts, and he gave this talk on reading and how he had just completed a study into the reading habits of Americans, and it was one of the largest studies ever done, and it was based specifically on literary books. So. Not just you know, how to or textbooks, but literature, poetry, stories, and found that there was a decline in reading across every age group, income, social, anything. it was the levels of people reading literature, reading poetry, having souls enriched by story. this was on the decline all across America, and he gave a very compelling talk on what that would mean for culture and what, that, what it would mean really specifically for democracy. Mm. And I was just fascinated by that because having grown up with books all around our home, I just assumed everybody had stories. right? <laughs> and it, it just was, I couldn't imagine a life without these books, these mental companions of my imagination. So I went home, ordered his reports and just became almost overnight passionate about getting the word out about great literature, especially for children, because I believe so strongly in the sense of story as shaping a child's identity, how they see themselves, how they see the world. And that eventually I started giving talks on children's literature and why people needed to read and did research into how it affected the brain and was just fascinated by what I found and started giving talks on that. And then that eventually turned into my book, Read for the Heart, which is a guide to children's literature. And that was really drove a lot of my writing and for the last couple of years. And then I did one brief term at Oxford in which I studied C.S. Lewis with Michael Ward, who is the author of a book you all should definitely read called Planet Narnia. if Planet loves Narnia. you Planet Narnia, okay. Yeah. Fascinating book. And he's a really, he's called one of the foremost Lewis scholars in the world. Has wonderful things to say about C.S. Lewis, really will help understand, people understand his, Lewis's grasp of reason and imagination. And that's really influenced how I look at the development of imagination in children. And after having a term of study with him, that was really the beginning drive for writing caught up in a story and really thinking about why imagination needs to be part of education and part of the development of a spiritual life in children. So yeah, so that then kind of was the foundation for Story Formed. I just wanted to create an online, basically, resource for people who just maybe haven't grown up with this world of great stories and literature and wanted it to be a place of community and a place to come for great book recommendations. And so kind of completed the launching of that this year and Then Oxford came along, which was a bit of a surprise. And that brings us up to the present.
0: (laughs) Well, very good. And I'll make sure there's links to everything, all those things that you just mentioned in our show notes. Storyformed.com. Definitely, listeners, if you have not been to the site yet, make sure you go there and that you sign up for her newsletter. Because really, as far as cutting right to the heart of how to build a family culture around books, how to form the holy imagination in your children, this is really the heart of what it's all about. She's got it all right there at Storyformed. So, Actually, let's talk a little bit about what it means to have a story-formed life, which okay. you go into, of course, in Caught Up in a Story. And this book is really great. And I definitely think it's a sort of a required reading for a family that really <laughs> wants to make books help form the shape of their child's soul as they're growing up. So let's talk about what that means. What's a story-formed life?
1: Do you know, to me, a story-formed life, is a life in which a child has the chance to perceive themselves as a hero or heroine in the story of their own life. And what I mean by that is, I really believe that life itself is a story. I think if you look at scripture, you have once upon a time in the beginning, God created. And one of the best gifts that I think my parents gave me was to expose me to the story of scripture in such a way that I knew it as an eternal and ultimate story. And I knew it as my story. And a story formed life then is as a, as a childhood in which a, a child has the chance to be immersed both in the story of scripture, to encounter the kings and the queens and the heroines and the villains of scripture as part of the story that, that they are part of in this world, in which they have the chance to play the villain or the heroine in the, in the story of God's kingdom come in the world. But it's also, I think, that the chance to grow up with an imagination formed by the great books of literature. I think we don't think enough in education about forming the interior world of a child because when children come into the world, they're taught how to see it. I've done a lot of study in the past couple of years on how our consciousness is formed and how language forms the way we see the world. And the stories we read, the books we read, the narratives that surround us from birth teach us how to look at ourselves, teach us how to look at other people, teach us how to see the world. So from a young age, if a child is taught to look at the world around them with wonder to see nature, to see storms, to see snow as something beautiful. Then they have from the very their youngest years this capacity to see the world as something beautiful, to perceive it as a gift, a gift from God, I would say. So then stories, I believe, because they're a narration that enters into a child's growing consciousness, they teach children to see life in terms of characters and heroes and heroines and narrative, to see meaning in choices. So you know, from the time I was a little girl, I was being read picture books when I was little. I still have very vivid memories of the specific picture books that my mom read to me. There was, I, I encountered this one book by what's his name, Michael Haig, an illustrator I just love. Yeah. Years later, was paging through it thinking, oh, these are such beautiful illustrations. I love these. And then realized that was the book that I, one of my first memories was of these books and realizing how much the beauty of his art. And then other ones with the beauty of language had shaped my love for literature and art. And so from the, the time children are little, I, oh, from the time I was little, I was, the first books I remember my mom reading aloud were Little House in the Prairie and The Chronicles of Narnia mm, yes. and of Green Gables and The Girl of the Limberlost. Lost. And these stories to a young little girl beginning to look at the world taught me to think of myself in terms of a heroine. You know, when, when you're reading a story about Lucy who goes into Narnia, and who meets the lion Aslan and has to be brave and has to meet enemies and decide what to do, it shapes the way a child thinks about themselves. So I would read those books with my mom and then go out into the backyard and pretend these stories in which I was the heroine, in which I met enemies, in which I was brave, in which I discovered something like Anna Green Gables, or found a, you know, a secret land in the backyard and named the trees and I didn't have a lake of shining waters, but you know I have a pond, <laughs> golden pond or something like that. Yes, <laughs> um, but every single story I read was teaching me, was filling my na- imagination first of all. But then it was forming the way I perceived myself. To see that in every situation I had the chance to, I was the same as a character in a book. My choices had consequence. My words could create or they could destroy. There's this sense in which, even as a young child, I, be- I think you begin to understand that your life is a narrative in which you have the power to play as a hero or a heroine. And I think that's formed both by literature and exposure to scripture as a story.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. That's something I was actually going to ask you specifically was your mention in the book of how you learn to see yourself as the heroine Mm -hmm. in the story of your own life. I thought that was so powerful. And the way you described it just makes me think, goodness, what could we possibly do to better prepare our children for the life that God's called them to Mm -hmm. than to help them see... Themselves as the hero or heroine in their own the story of their own life. So I think
1: it's crucial.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So tell me then, when you were growing up, did you have such a positive view of your parents and the time spent reading together? And your family was homeschooling at a time not Mm -hmm. like today, when homeschooling is really widespread and super acceptable, you know, pretty much <laughs> right. everywhere. So tell me about that. When you were growing up, did you have this sort of appreciation for the read aloud culture in your home and a kind of the countercultural way your parents were raising you? Or is that something you've matured into and saw now see, you know, in hindsight?
1: Sure. The read aloud culture it was something pretty much we enjoyed. My mom was definitely believed in bribing us in the sense of (laughs) she did everything she could. um, Like every good mother. (laughs) Like every good mother. There's nothing wrong with this. Delight is part of training. Reading times were delightful. You know, I remember someone asking me, what did you do this morning? And I said, well, did you do school this morning? I said, "No, we didn't do school, we just read aloud." And my mom was like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait. We did too do school. We read aloud history, poetry, art and literature." And I was like, "Oh, I guess that was school." Yes.
0: Um, <laughs> that happens to us too. We'll go to the grocery store, and someone will, well, not anymore so much, but it used to happen when the kids were really little. My oldest were really little. They would say, "You know, are you already done with school? or, you know, where are you in yeah. school?" And they'd say, "We're homeschool." "Oh, you don't have school today?" And they're like, "No." And I would think, "Oh my goodness. I mean, I was at the same time Really excited that my kids didn't see it as school to be checked off, and really horrified that this is what they would say to perfect strangers.
1: <laughs> I think it goes hand in hand with the idea, which I think is I think should be the ideal that education isn't this goal you do it's a life it's and it's a beautiful life. it's this whole mindset of everything is about learning and experiencing and taking in the richness of what is on offer in books and art and the whole world there's so much to discover and I think. Probably that goes with when children learn to love learning early on, it's not seen as a chore, it's just what they do. And it's, it's exciting, and it's fascinating. And I mean, I so in that sense, I think I simply enjoyed the reading culture of our home, we had a very regular rhythm, because my mom had read a lot, as had my dad early on about just the impact of reading. And I would say I've added to that since there's research in the past few years on reading as they say it's a reading culture in the home is is really one of the single most important factors in educational success for children. And so my parents, you know, a lot of our, the rhythm of our days was based on reading. So, you know, we had devotions in in the morning in which we were reading stories of scripture and then, you know, a lot of reading together for education. So we were reading through historical novels. We were reading poetry together. We were looking at books of art and discussing things. We were you know, reading science and nature, and then going out and having a a nature hunt. So, and then in the afternoon, we were, our option from a very young age was take a nap or read for an hour. So guess what we did? (laughs) Because what child wants to actually sleep? when Exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So from the reading culture point of view, it was just very much a normal rhythm of life. It was delightful. A lot of the time we would, you know, sit by the fire and make hot chocolate, we'd put on music. My mom allowed us to Draw or play Legos or you know sew whatever we wanted to do with our hands as long as we could narrate at the end of a chapter what happened as long as there was you know we had engaged with our minds so it was very rarely something that we felt we had to do it was really an enjoyment and I think I've often reflected on that because I think that both the regularity of reading in our lives made it a habit made it an expectation that to this day you know I'm 30 years old I feel odd if I have not read in a given day. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean I'm still reading hours and hours every day. Now at Oxford, I am, (laughs) but (laughs) in real life, real life gets busy. I don't always have the time to read for hours and hours, but there's this sense that it's part of the rhythm of an ongoing and natural life to learn, to be taking in, to be continuously learning. And I think that that habit and that expectation was formed by those reading rhythms when I was a child. Um, And just the delightfulness of it. You know, that story and reading were something to soothe and encourage and enrich my soul and Help me in times of trial. Those were, I think, habits formed early on. My awareness, I think, of the gift of that culture, I think that's something you can probably only, I could only come to as an adult in the Mm -hmm. sense that I wasn't aware of probably the somewhat radical nature of my parents' choices until I was older and had, you know, other things to compare them to. I I wasn't fully aware at the time I was young that they were making very countercultural choices. It was just the story I was living. And it was mostly delightful story there. I mean, I think there was definitely loneliness in my teenage years in which I began to question and want to understand why we lived the way we did and why we'd made the choices we did and why we had these standards and why education looked this way in our family. But the more I questioned and pushed, you know, it sounds like I'm just being an idealist, but truly the more thankful I've become for the lifestyle that they chose because I am so aware of the way that stories formed my conception of self, formed my identity. That's a huge part of the story form life. I didn't say that a minute ago. I think stories confer identity. They shape the way you see yourself. And the older I got, the more I realized that the mode of education my parents had chosen, their commitment to discipleship, their commitment to exposing me to scripture as a story and really calling me to live as a heroine in that story It's just something I'm increasingly thankful for. And it really drives my commitment to StoryForms, that whole storyform.com and the books I'm writing is is the desire, I think, to share a life which I consider a gift from my parents and to help other people gain a vision for that and to gain the know-how. Because if you don't know books well, it's daunting to begin, but I really see that life as a gift. And I think that's something I've definitely come to as an adult.
0: Well, I think that's so encouraging. And so I think we kind of get wrapped up in wanting to make sure that our children maybe appreciate all the toil and hard work that we feel like we're (laughs) pouring out of ourselves every day. And we sort of forget that it's a long haul. And from the long view, we don't get to see that. We don't get to see that appreciation. Well, some of us don't get to see that appreciation probably in this lifetime, but it's really about doing the work God set before us and Mm -hmm. going all in on everything He's asked of us. And then I just think you're such a beautiful testament to your parents' commitment to your family just the way you can now say, you know, I'm so grateful for the hard choices my parents made because it's made me into the woman I am today.
1: Oh, absolutely. And children are notoriously ungrateful. So (laughs) (laughs) you just, you know, you take life for granted until you get out and you begin to realize, oh my goodness, not everyone has this. Wow. My parents really made choices that were ultimately a gift to me. So I, yes, I, it's a long haul, but I think that all of my siblings we would all agree that we are at the point of beginning to realize especially as we think about raising children of our own and as we think about shaping our own lives as adults just realizing the choices necessary it does come eventually it just takes time <laughs> right <laughs> maturity is a
0: gradual process <laughs> <laughs> right we still know that even after we've got a whole slew of children <laughs> we're still maturing so then how did your parents handle if you or your siblings didn't like a particular book Did they push through it? Did they just keep going? Did they let it go and try something else, or what was your experience with that? Hmm.
1: I would say a variety of things. First, for readers, I was a fairly voracious reader. You kind of couldn't keep me in books, and so, and I definitely had my favorite genres, which at one point was Nancy Drew. So, you know, my mom had us on rotation. We had we each had book baskets where kept the books that we were reading at the time. And so in the sense that my mom wanted us to be reading a variety, my dad, I'm, I say mom and dad is both. I'm just thinking of sure that specifically. So before I could read, you know, an easy book or a, you know, another Nancy Drew, I had to read through a historical fiction, a science and nature, a missionary biography, something along those lines. So okay. there's always the continual rotation of, you know, there's, you need to keep reading these other things too. In that sense, We were required to be reading a variety of things, even if some things were our favorite and some things weren't. Now, in some areas, some books are just hard. And if I was just really didn't like the book, if my brothers were struggling either with the vocabulary or we could appeal to my mom. And if reading was very much driven by delight and by, you know, a sense of if this is not helping a child to love reading, if this is becoming more of a stumbling block to continuing reading than it is a help, then my mom had no problem just changing the book. But it wasn't as if we only read one kind of book or right. only Nancy Drew's or only fantasy novels or whatever it was. I think it was a case-to-case basis. So, you know, my one of my brothers chose a biography of Colonel Travis, an Alamo hero at the, po- at the time we were living okay. in Texas. And <laughs> it turned out to be a high school level vocabulary that was just really difficult. And interestingly enough, he wanted to finish it. So my mom sat down with him and would help him read aloud from it every day. Mm-hmm. But eventually... With a book like that, it was fine to set it aside and choose something else. So it was this balance between, I want you to be reading a variety of books. If it's just about, you don't want to read a historical fiction and it's that turn. Right. You need to read the historical fiction before you can read the Nancy Drew. (laughs) But if it was a matter of, I'm struggling with this, it's going to take weeks. I hate the whole process. No problem. in just changing the book, finding something different. And there's so many options of great books out there that it was just kind of a, sure, let's switch and try something else. Yes. As long as the reading was continuing. We'll get back to the show in
0: just a minute. At the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that what I propose for this summer is a relaxed and simple plan that offers just enough structure to keep your days from melting into chaos and just enough fun to keep your kids asking for more. And what summer wouldn't be much, much better with a whole bunch of fairy tales? Well, I'm teaching a free workshop called Three Simple Steps to a Fairy Tale Summer And here's what we're going to talk about. First, how reading fairy tales can make your summer easier. Yes, easier. We want to take things off your plate this summer, not put more on, right? (laughs) Fairy tales can make your summer easier and more fun. I'm also going to share the fairy tales I recommend for every age and the tippy-top thing you can do to make sure your kids make. Delightful memories this summer. It is way less work and way less pressure than you think. The free workshop is happening live online on May 7th, 2024, and you can save your free seat by texting the word fairy tale, all one word, to the number 33777. And yes, there's a replay. So make sure you register, even if you can't join us live on May 7th. Again, text the word "fairy tale" all one word, to the number 33777. Okay. So then when you, did she read aloud to all of you at the same time or did she Mm -hmm. do, did she ever read just to you? Like when she had read maybe the Girl of the Limberlost, or sure. Little Women, or Anne of Green Gables—did she read that to your brothers as well? Some of those,
1: yes. We, <laughs> or I did. <laughs> of course, my brothers to read lots of books aloud with me. They actually oh, enjoyed it. So funny, I tea and cookies. Oh um, yes, there you go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there is the <laughs> ultimate lesson of this podcast.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, you can bribe anyone to listen to books if you have enough tea and cookies. <laughs> From the time I was about seven or eight years old, my mom and I had Monday nights or Monday afternoon dates. And that was when we would talk. And when I was older it would turn more discipleship and sharing hearts. But we always had about an hour a week when she was reading aloud a book to me, just okay. to me. Did um, you and do that, that with each of your siblings? Yes. Yeah, so I think the more siblings we were and the older we got, you know, it, it varied.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> she right. did what
1: was possible. Now get, having a date with us, as all, you know, once a week, every, once every couple of weeks, that was a pretty important and regular rhythm to be checking in with each of us. Okay, Reading was very much part of that for a lot of our lives. And, you know, older, older we got, it became more about conversation and discipleship and okay. all of that. But yeah, I would say when we were young, Reading aloud a book with a parent has been—it was always a special part of our childhood. So that's how we read aloud Girl of Limberlost*. And we went through. There was a beautiful girlhood when I was young. That was kind of a—it was a Victorian republished book on what it means to be have a, a beautiful heart and soul. And so we would read through that together. And is that I know Karen that with Andriola, my. Is that that's right? That's okay. right. Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, with my brothers, it was Tiger and Tom. You know, these old stories, or it was the Narnia Chronicles, though. So, I probably wouldn't have you know wanted to be left out of Narnia Chronicles so I don't really Yes, right. Yeah, reading aloud one-on-one with a parent was a special part. I think especially of our young childhoods when we were younger beginning to learn to read, having bedtime stories sometimes one-on-one, those were special things. And as we got older, my mom had more in her on her hands and more educationally with all of us to take care of, we siblings started reading together. And it was something that really formed our friendships. I've read aloud in the last Even when my brother Nathan is home, we were both home over a summer a couple of years ago. And we read aloud a book together over the summer break, just the two of us. So there's a real value in my family for using books as a a way of friendship and relationships. So yes, I don't know if that answers the question. but It does.
0: Yeah, it does. And so then tell me a little bit more about how that shared reading impacted your sibling relationships. I've seen a little bit of this in my family. Well, so we have six kids. We have three kids that are 13, 11, and nine, and then three okay. toddlers. So, oh my God just poured out a whole bunch more babies for us. It's been really fun. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Um, but one of the things is that my read aloud time with this new batch of babies has sure. really been cut, of course. So, one thing I've noticed is that my 11 year old will fall in love with the series that my nine year old's not quite ready to read yet on his own. And so, they'll sure. disappear into the basement and she'll read it aloud to him. And this is so, <laughs> I mean, I'm just so excited about this possibility. But I'm just curious as to the sibling effect, you know, what effects it had on your sibling relationships to be able to share books together.
1: I think great books and great stories are profoundly friend-forming things, especially with siblings. We, I would say for us, it created this sense of a shared narrative, these stories that, you know, our imaginations were being filled with the same books and the same things. And I think because we did it too, as kind of a treat. One of the first books I read aloud to my siblings, I was probably, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. I can't even remember exactly, but we read Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And I had just gotten my first official tea set. And so (laughs) I I forced my brothers to have tea with me, but they actually enjoyed it because (laughs) they've just been reading C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, you could never find A cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit my taste. And so at that point, tea was okay, which all the men in my family love tea. And they have been taught to love Pride and Prejudice and Anna Green Gables. So it's it's just (laughs) It's It's all learned then. (laughs) And the girls love, you know, Lord of the Rings and Kidnapped, which is very much a swashbuckling tale of adventure. And so we would sit together by the fire and we we would read Kidnapped, this story of a young Scottish boy whose, you know, evil uncle wants to cheat him out of his inheritance and he ends up in the highlands during some of the Scottish, you know, unsettling things and is on this epic journey. And we loved it. And we would read those books and then go out and pretend the stories. And later on, we would read aloud. I read aloud The Great Divorce to my brothers. And, you know, for us, it was very much a shared culture. Uh, We all enjoyed the stories. Reading those together gave us things that we discussed in common. You know, I talk about (laughs) Lord of the Rings in our family, it's kind of one of the defining narratives of our family. We talk about things in terms of, you know, the fellowship and Gandalf is a common name and Frodo. and But reading these stories together creates this shared sense of narrative and this shared sense of who we want to be. And I, there's a, the story I, I open up, caught up in a story with the book that you, were, you mentioned a little bit earlier is of a walk I had with my brother, Nathan, when he was, I think he was 12 and I was 15 or, or no, he would have been 10 or something like that it's been a while. <laughs> but we went on this walk and he took my arm and he said, Sarah, what hero do you want to be? Because we'd both been reading Lord of the Rings together. He was like, I want to be this hero. And then he said, which hero do you think you want to be? And that kind of, that conversation encapsulates to me one of the gifts of reading together as siblings and kind of sharing this world in which we're growing and imagining together. And I just think it creates a profound sense of friendship between siblings. And as I said, my, you know, Home two summers ago, my brother, who's you know got a full-time job out in Hollywood, and I'm home from a study of some sort. I don't remember what it was, but we sat out on the porch every morning and read this story, Peace Like a River by Le Finger. It's one of our favorite books. And just we're immersed in this tale of this little boy named Ruben who believed he'd been put on the earth to witness the miracles of his very humble janitor father and the the way he searched for his brother. And it just creates this deep friendship and this shared view of the world and the shared sense of narrative of what we expect and how we see the world and how we dream. And I I just think that books really form friendships.
0: I think that's so true. And I think what a gift because sibling relationships, you know, can be difficult. (laughs) (laughs) And I think as, you know, Parents, we're always trying to smooth out the ruffles in between our kids that are, you know, arguing with each other or so yeah. what a gift to be able to give them this sort of common joy to be able to enjoy together. And common. then Well and then as I can kind of imagine in my head, I sort of envision Thanksgiving 20 years from now when my kids <laughs> come home and then start making references to the books that they both read and loved together because it's a part of our family culture. It's sort of oh, one of my absolutely. dreams. <laughs>
1: Well, If you're anything like us. Yes. I mean, that's, with you know, 20 years down the road, we're all, my brother is married now and we all, we were all together for Christmas and the amount of references to stories. And it's just, it's part of the way we speak about life with each other. And, and we will bring home books to show each other and books and stories. I mean, to share stories is still one of the things that we consider, you know, our job to do with our siblings. We have to share our favorite stories.
0: Okay. So storyform.com has some really awesome book lists and recommendations. I want to know where you go to find good book recommendations.
1: Where I go to find good book recommendations, a variety of places. <laughs> My really good reading friends, that's one of the primary places I go. I would say, gosh, let me think about this. One of the places I go, Books and Culture Magazine, which is Christianity Today, it's their arm. Okay. Um, and they are constantly reviewing books new books, looking at what's coming out, but also reviewing older books, looking at classics. That's a place I definitely go. You know, a lot of what I do is I identify favorite authors and then look at what they're reading or what they're recommending. Malcolm Guite, G-U-I-T-E, is a poet that I really love. If you are interested in poetry at all, you should go to his website and look at his collections. But, you know, I'll choose someone like him or like my tutor, Michael Ward, and I'll just look at, you know, who has influenced them. I, I read Malcolm Geit's book, Faith, Hope, and Poetry. I haven't heard of and that one. Okay. It, it's kind of a watershed book for me. It, it really, he traces basically through, he goes through the history of poetry in the English language, starting with, you know, I think it was an anonymous author of, of The Dream of the Root and goes all the way through to, and I will probably say his name wrong, but I think it's Seamus Heaney or Heaney, okay. okay, the modern Irish poet who translated Beowulf, showing how poetry forms our imagination in a certain way and really looking at the difference between reason and imagination. So for me, it was this book that really articulated a lot of what I would felt intuitively, but wasn't sure how to describe right. or articulate. So I really recommend him and that book. But when I was going through the book, I just started making a list of the poets he mentioned and the classics he mentioned, and then went and got those books. So from that point of view, you know, I'm just constantly making book lists of what I want to read. I have to admit, I'm more of a reader of books than of blogs. I know that I run a blog, so I probably should read more blogs. But <laughs> I'm um, the same way. So <laughs> I will admit that I'm a, a reader rather than a, a blog reader. So I love... There's a book called Reading the Classics with C.S. Lewis that just really goes through... I think C.S. Lewis is one of the best examples of a story-formed soul because this was a boy who interacted with stories from the time he was young and they formed his spiritually and educationally. So I just wanted to read what Lewis had read. And there's, you know, he's read mm-hmm. so many books. Mm-hmm. It was enough to last me for the rest of my life. But I love that. I love Honey for a Woman's Heart by Gladys. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just a great source. Gosh, I'm trying to think. I go, oh, gosh. I well, those- the great thing is that we can all turn to you because you have that great reading guide. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, The Rabbit Room. I write for The Rabbit Room. It's yes. um, a great literary faith arts blog. I just love the community. I, whatever my friends they're reading, I'm going to look up. Okay. I just recently
0: stumbled across them probably through your, you know, a few people have mentioned it to me and then I saw a reference to The Green Ember on your site. Yes. So I went and grabbed it. We're going to start reading it tonight. And the author of The Green Ember is going to be on the show in a few weeks. I'm so excited. Oh, wonderful.
1: Sam's great.
0: Oh, good. Good. Yes. I'm so excited. And I just felt like when I found The Rabbit Room, I felt like I found... Actually, I kind of felt like I fell into a rabbit hole because I felt oh my goodness, I could just sit <laughs> and just click around here and read and just, it's amazing. So we'll make sure we link that up in the show notes as well.
1: And there's just great book recommendations there. And you can look in the bookstore. That's probably one of my primary sources because it's the kind of reading I love anyway. So. Right, right. Okay,
0: so here is a doozy of a question for you. If you were <laughs> stranded on an island and could only oh. have three books with you, what would they be?
1: Oh, I agonized over this one. I have the hard, still having the hardest time identifying them. I have to start by saying Lord of the Rings. Okay. For me, it is the trilogy. For me, it is a book that I find something different in it every time. I just think the world, the artistry of it, the world that Tolkien created. But then I just, I read it all through again last autumn. And when I got to the final book, Return of the King, I pretty much cried my way through the last book because there was the imagery of, a king who gives his life for his people. I just find this there's this beauty. There are so many levels of courage, of quest, of beauty, of waiting through suffering. Of It is just this story that is constantly new. And so, and it is one of the defining stories of my life and my family. And for me, it was kind of a, a moment of crisis in my faith when I was a teenager. That novel came and just really revived my ability to see the beauty of the world and the the nature of God's story and to say, mm. if Frodo can go to Mount Doom, then I can make it through this trial. So mm. yes. <laughs> I would say that is one of my, that is a book I would definitely take to Desert Island. Gosh, the other ones are so hard. I have thought and thought about this. Um, I wondered if you'd even be it, able to answer it or if you'd refuse. <laughs> it is difficult. <laughs> I can't refuse because there's so many good books. Right. <laughs> I'm going to say, and this is going to sound really hoity-toity, but it's really not. It's because I don't know it well enough. I would want my complete works of Shakespeare because I am just beginning to appreciate Shakespeare with the depth with which he should be appreciated. Mm, yeah. And I would want to be able to read through and... Appreciate it. There's such richness, and just in the language, I'm delight. And well, I don't like,
0: know. Are you familiar with Andrew Kern from the Cersei Institute? No, I'm not. Okay, so the Cersei Institute is an organization that. Oh goodness, they are re- kind of rebuilding classical education as the pursuit of virtue and wisdom. And oh, that's wonderful. it's wonderful, like beautiful. Anyway, Andrew Kern heads up the whole thing there. And okay. he says, nobody understands Shakespeare, but everybody should read Shakespeare from the time they're three because it's so beautiful. It doesn't matter if you understand <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> it forms you your know There's forms something you. to that because I agree. I listened, to, but I think this is the key. I think it needs to be read aloud. I think Okay. Okay. Well, and that's what it was intended to be, right? Because it well, they exactly. were plays. Okay. And when I my love for Shakespeare began to grow when a friend and I sat down one summer and we would just read aloud passages together for 30, 45 minutes. And the rhythm and the humor and just the intricacy of his language and the, the way he's using words to create these images in your mind and these illusions and these metaphors, it comes out when you're actually speaking it. And so I think I would take that with me because it would entertain me on a desert island, especially if I had a friend, but even if I was by myself, I would read <laughs> a lot of different po- parts and different voices. Yes. So I'll say, I'll say my complete Shakespeare because there's still so much I haven't read and it okay. would entertain me for a while. And then there's so many I could choose. There is almost no way I can choose. But I'll say one that uh, this will have weight because I was looking at my bookshelves thinking, I can't pack many books for Oxford. What are one or two books that I would want to have in a mm. time of crisis? Yes. And Elizabeth Googe is one of my favorite authors. She's okay. not well-known. She's becoming a little bit better known because there was a uh, – J.K. Rowling actually lists her children's book as – one of her favorite childhood books, *Little White Horse*. Right. Okay. But I encountered her books when a dear professor friend of mine put her book in my hand and basically said, "This is a very special story. Read it when you have time to enjoy it." And she's a British author, lived during World War II, World War One, World War Two, and just has a deep grasp of, I think, both English history, which I love anyway. But her writing is a combination of the beauty of Lucy Maud Montgomery, the way she describes the world, and which she kind of make helps you to enter into a landscape or a home with it It almost feels like it's, it's a live person around you. And I think Elizabeth Gooch had this real sense of the presence of God and the beauty of the world. And so her book's always meant a lot to me that way. But she has such a grasp of human nature. And then of the interior world, she really gets inside people's minds and looks at how we perceive each other and perceive the world and how we make decisions and how we know what is good and evil. And one book of hers, there's several that I love. I'd be really torn between them. Um, pilgrim's Inn is one of my favorites, set just after World War II with this family who moves from war-torn London. they are kind of been broken up by the war, and they move to this old Pilgrim's Inn, which used to be the stopping place for pilgrims on their way to Canterbury. Okay. It's a very, very old Pilgrim's Inn. And it's this story about how this home that has been drenched in prayer and drenched in you know the hopes of pilgrims for centuries becomes this place of shelter and healing for the people who come to it. It's just this beautiful picture of how a home can be a place of revival and a place of the restoring and nourishment of the soul and what a home can be to the people who live within it. And I love that one. I'm sneaking in two books, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite. But the one I'm taking to Oxford is actually a book Uh, called A Scent of Water. and. It's a very, very simple story. It's a very quiet story. So you know, you're not looking for dramatic narrative, but mm-hmm. it's just the story of a woman who inherits a small an old home in an English village. And to her surprise, it's set in the fifties after right after the war. And realizes it might be her last chance in the midst of a modern age to experience the deep quiet of the countryside and the quiet of a different life. And so she moves there, but she's very unexpectedly caught up in the story of the woman who lived there before her. And it's a book about what happens in the quiet and inner places of the heart.
0: I think and I have that book on my shelf and I've just never, I haven't heard anyone talk about it. So I haven't picked
1: it. I'm going to go start it today. <laughs> I, it is so nourishing to my soul. And again, it's a very quiet story. So it's, okay. it has just been, it's kind of a spiritual companion in many ways. And Gooch, like George MacDonald and some of Lewis is one of those authors, you almost can read their novels as devotion, devotional because they're so rich in spiritual thought. Well, as- I'm
0: excited to hear that because my 13-year-old is reading her very final Lucy Maud Montgomery. <laughs> We've oh. scoured to find everything written by her, and she's <laughs> so sad. I can see her slowing down and she's so sad oh. to be reading the last one. And so oh. to tell her that I can introduce her to someone else who will feed oh. that part of her. Yeah. That will be Gouge wonderful. Googe is a
1: natural. I really okay. can think it together. I think you start with Lucy Montgomery and then you progress to Googe. Okay. <laughs> Perfect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You'll probably make her day with that recommendation. Oh, so. oh, thank you so much for chatting with me today. This has been so
1: wonderful. Can you oh, tell our good. listeners where they can find you online? Absolutely storyforms.com is my site for children's literature it's really where I'm trying to develop it's been slower as I have been at Oxford but I'm continuing to want to develop just a library of online of book reviews so you can go and search a catalog and find you know a, a medieval book for boys or whatever that there's a, an easily searchable database of book reviews so that and then just you know a continual resource of articles on imagination of you know book lists by other people of So storyforms.com is my major site on children's literature. And then my personal blog where I do a lot of writing of a more devotional or faith or current life experience or beauty, things like that is thoroughlyalive.com. Okay. So those are the two places to find me on the web. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you being with me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a delight.
0: Now it's time for Let the Kids Speak. This is my favorite part of the podcast, where kids tell us about their favorite stories that have been read aloud to them. Hi, I'm leaving a message for Nicholas. Mewald. He is seven years old and from Kansas. I'd like to share the book with you called
1: The Gruffalo. Our favorite character is the Gruffalo itself.
0: Because he has knobbly knees and turned out toes and a poisonous wart at the end of his nose. His eyes are orange, his tongue is black,
1: and sharp purple prickles cover his back. It's one of our favorite stories. We hope to share it with you.
0: Hi, I'm Lily and I'm seven years old. I live in Kentucky. I like to book Nancy and Plum by Betty McDonald because they're orphans that have lots of adventures.
1: They're fun and exciting. There's a happy ending. If you want to find out what it is, read the book. Hi, I'm
0: i Payne, I'm four years old, and I live in Kentucky. And my favorite book is The Wonderful Wizard of Oz because there's just a named Dorothy in it, and there's... In a house in a tornado carries her away
1: and she lands in her
0: place. Ah, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. That is one of my very, very favorites. Actually, I think it probably is my favorite one to read aloud. That's a really fun one. I agree. <laughs> so, so good, right? I love it when the kids call in and your kids can call in. Of course, go to readaloudrevival.com. Super easy for them to leave me an audio message and it doesn't have to be perfect. We can clean it up so if your child is a little nervous about fumbling or not being confident enough, have them give it a try anyway and it's no problem. We just love to hear from kids about what they're reading. So really what Sarah Clarkson writes about in her book, Caught Up in a Story, and what she talks about over at storyformed.com, that cuts right to the heart of what we mean when we say build a family culture around books. There will be links in the show notes to everything we talked about during the show, of course head to readaloudrevival.com and click on episode 17 to find them. While you're there, be sure to subscribe for the weekly emails. Those are tips and encouragement that land in your inbox every Friday. And I've heard back from so many listeners who say that those are their favorite email to get all week. So make sure you get in on that. I love sending those. Listen, there is a huge way you can help me get the word out about the Read Aloud Revival iTunes has this really mysterious algorithm. And one of the things they do is that if a show gets several ratings or reviews, they'll start showing that show more often to people who are searching for something new. So the best way for us to reach out to more families and give them the encouragement they need to build a family culture around books is to help them find the podcast. And you can help a ton with that simply by leaving a rating or review. In the show notes, I'll link to iTunes. And I would so appreciate it if you could just take two or three minutes to leave a little rating or review for the show there. Makes a huge difference. Every time we turn another family into forming a read aloud culture in their home, I feel like we've made this big win. You know, whenever I get an email or I see a review on iTunes that says, I found your podcast and I'm so inspired to read aloud. I just think this is what this community is doing. We're rebuilding the culture for our kids. I'm so excited about that. Okay, friends, I look forward to connecting with you again in a couple of weeks. Until then, go build your family culture around books.